0: Moving on to our first panel of the afternoon, Beardsley period and beyond. So as I said, we've got three lovely speakers today and we're going to run back to back and have questions afterwards. So our first speaker today is uh, Dr. Samuel Shaw, who is a teaching fellow in the History of Art Department in Birmingham. He's co-founder of the Edwardian Culture Network, for which he recently co-edited the collection volume of essays, Edwardian Culture, Beyond the Garden Party, and that came out last year. He's also worked extensively on Beardsley's friend and contemporary, William Rothenstein, and on the turn-of-the-century art market. So his paper this afternoon is entitled, I Belong to the Beardsley Period, and Beardsley in the British Context. Thank you. Thank you very much, Madeline. Can you hear me at the back? Yeah. Wonderful. Okay, so wonderful pleasure to be at this event. Again, thank you so much, Sasha and Linda, wherever you are in the room. Linda. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so great to be here and to hear about all the exciting research that's been done and is being done on Aubrey Beardsley. And I have to start by saying my research has been sort of moving away from the 1890s in recent years and encompassing all sorts of different things. So, it's really nice to have this chance to get back into the period and think about Beardsley a little bit more, who I may have been guilty of perhaps um, not so much ignoring as manoeuvring around in the past. And that's one of the things I'm going to be discussing in this paper. I also want to make clear up front that this claim that I made um, in my abstract and will be making in this paper that greater effort should be made to see Beardsley in the context of his immediate contemporaries in Britain, so what I call the British context, is not intended in any way as some kind of nationalistic manoeuvre, always worried about that in this current climate, designed to play down or temper wider international transnational connections. So I'm deeply fascinated by Beardsley's legacy in this country and abroad as well. I recently taught a class in Birmingham on Fondi der Vienna and I was really thrilled to see an article in a recent edition of Art History by Nathan Timpano looking at Beardsley in the context of Vienna. So I'm really very much in favour of opening up Beardsley Studies in which spirit I think this event was created. But at the same time I did want to issue a reminder that there is still a lot of work to be done in establishing the relationship between Beardsley and his immediate contemporaries. By which I mean artists of roughly the same generation who overlapped with the artist in some way, so either working for the same magazines or books, hanging out in the same social spaces, exhibiting in the same galleries, working on similar themes or approaching their craft in a similar way. So going beyond just sort of Um, superficial visual similarities and exploring more the approach and the process. And something I want to address today uh, are some reasons as to why this work may not have been already done, um, at least in great detail, and I'm not at all suggesting it it hasn't been done by many people. And secondly, I will outline some directions in which this research um, might take in my own research and that of others, um, and based very much on my own interests and I think I listed a whole host of artists I would like to discuss in my abstract, I was thinking of taking on far too much. So I'm gonna mostly focus on a very familiar example today and rather inevitably bring in the artist William Rothenstein as a way of, sort of thinking about <coughs> new ways we might think about Beardsley. As an opening image though, so I did decide to bring up um, these images here, place Beardsley in the company of J.B. Clarke and William Strang who were his fellow contributors to the 1894 edition of Lucian's True History. And obviously Beardsley originally intended to provide, I think, all of his illustrations himself, is that right? Yeah. I think that's right. Um, but he was unable to do so and Strang and Clark also provided some. In fact, Beardsley ultimately only provides two in the published work, with Strang and Clark um, providing seven each. However, the book tends to be remembered for Beardsley's involvement, with Strang and Clark's images often passed over in silence. And I think in the case of William Strang in particular, this is a great shame. I think there's much more to him as an artist than someone who happened to appear in the same book as Aubrey Beardsley. And this is rarely reflected in the literature, although I must note in passing, um, Lorraine Johnson-Coystra's writing on Strang in her Wonderful Artist as Critic, which I think is kind of a model of a text that sees Beardsley on terms of relative equality in the visual um, culture of the period in which he worked. (coughs) So I'm not going to talk about these images in any more detail today much as I would like to, but I'll leave them up on the screen for a few minutes so you can enjoy them. So what I'm addressing in some ways is what I, and I'm by no means the first to do this, have perceived as a kind of paradox of Beardsley's place in the history of art in Britain. So on the one hand, you have the fact of his immense popularity, which is exemplified by um, the sumptuous catalogue raisonné, And on the other, you have a kind of curious absence um, of Beardsley from many studies of modern art in Britain. A lack of certainty, you might say, particularly amongst art historians as to where to place his art or how to teach it. And it's very notable to me, having done a lot of teaching the last few years, that Beardsley pops up again and again in (coughs) modules in English literature departments in universities, but very rarely in art history modules. Though no one can deny he deserves consideration in the latter. I think it's fair to say these two issues are closely connected, so (coughs) this uncertainty over Beardsley's place is related to his popularity, But he has, in a sense, become a kind of field in itself subject to a certain mania which as Chris Stodgrass pointed out in 1999 has spawned scholarship that can be sometimes narrow in its scope and which stands apart from broader narratives. And he also points to the possibility that this um, paradoxical position as a kind of icon on the one hand and a minor figure in um, the cultural canon on the other might relate to his status among art historians as a kind of mere illustrator. So with notable exceptions, not a painter. Um, But also possibly, you know, as this reputation of Beardsley as a literary artist. And it might be for this reason that art historians seem to have perhaps been resigned to his co-option by literary scholars. And I don't mean co-option in a sort of nasty way here, um, simply in a kind of visible sense. So I think this is problematic and I don't think it reflects too well on art historians and it's here I must confess that I myself have tended to um, avoid Beardsley when thinking and writing about visual culture in the 1890s, treating him as if he weren't just another link in the chain, albeit obviously a special, very special link, but some kind of monolithic force that could only be considered on its own terms. So this brings me to this idea of the Beardsley period, which is coined by Max Beerbohm and taken up by many writers also, such as Osman Burdett, whose um, 1925 book is pictured here. And what I've always liked about Beerbohm's, um, I guess we could call it a joke, um, about the Beardsley period is not just its prescience, but also the way it intermingles a sense of belonging, so um, a sense of kind of allegiance, even pride, that he belongs to the same period as Beardsley. But it intermingles this with a sense of non-belonging, so a kind of realization on Beerbohm 's part that the period in which he worked, or the, the first half, well, not even the first half of his career, the first few years of his career, um, would be dominated by a single overpowering figure, at least in the sphere of visual culture. And I've always been interested that Beerblum seems to accept this fate. He seems quite happy to belong to the Beardsley period, whereas other artists, such as their mutual friend, William Rokenstein, disassociates a little bit from the 1890s, perhaps aware that he doesn't want to get stuck in the Beardsley period. So, How do we navigate? So, here are Beerbohm, Rothenstein, and Beardsley having a lovely tete a tete in the bottom right hand corner. So, how do we navigate the shadow um, Beardsley cast over this period of British art? This problem is addressed not just in Beardham's comment, but it's there very much in one of the earliest surveys, Holbrook Jackson's famous um, study of the 1890s, in which Aubrey Beardsley gets his own chapter early on in the book and in which all of the other artists, Max Beerbohm aside, but his chapter is mostly about writing, are discussed altogether in four chapters placed at the end of the book. And Jackson addresses this issue directly at several points. So as we see here, he notes that Beardsley crowded the vision of the period by the peculiarity of his art. Elsewhere, he writes, Beardsley's best drawings stand out from the general level of British art with such sheer audacity as to compel attention. So these are familiar phrases, much repeated over the years, and reflected both in the attention given to Beardsley over his immediate contemporaries and the relative lack of studies in which Beardsley and another artist or group of artists are seen on relatively equal footing. And to give one example um, here, so the catalogue to the exhibition um, The Age of Enchantment, which was held a few years ago, I think really did try to situate Beardsley within a wider context of late 19th and early 20th century illustration, but it frequently fell into this kind of master disciple model that's common across the literature, which stretches the fact of Beardsley's influence so far as to casually dismiss the work of some very valuable artists. And I think the aforementioned William Strang is a good example here. He's an artist who's always seen in relation to who he wasn't, rather than who he was. So this is the problem as I see it. So beyond the Beggarstaff brothers, maybe a bit of Lawrence Houseman, a little bit of Charles Ricketts, I still sense a general reluctance (coughs) to take serious comparative studies between Beardsley and his British contemporaries. And some may be fine with this. They might say Beardsley was better, who cares? Um, And I can see that argument in some ways. But I believe that seeing Beardsley in this context can create connections that not only help us to see Beardsley in a new light, but help bring him into this wider narrative of modern British art, where he undoubtedly belongs, as well as really reshaping the way we think about art in Britain at the turn of the century. So with this in mind, I want to very briefly consider some ways in which we, or more particularly I, Oh, that's nice. <laughs> I can probably lower my voice a little, Hunter. Some ways in which we, or I, might locate Beasley within the context of British art. So these are um, very general and are really meant to raise questions rather than give solutions. So I want to start at, take as a starting point his well-documented friendship with the artist William Rokenstein. I won't go into the details of their friendship, um, much here, but I couldn't resist this slide in which we see Rokenstein depicting Beardsley on the left, and Beardsley depicting Rokenstein, albeit only just, on the right. So he's the face who sort of peeps out to the far right of Lucian's strange creatures. So Rokenstein and Beardsley are good friends, they write a short dialogue together. Um, Rokenstein famously gifts Beardsley a series of erotic Japanese prints. He introduces him to figures such as Max Beerbohm, and they hang out in places such as Paris, um, the Café Royal in London, Dieppe, and so forth. And they're also exploring some similar subjects and themes in their art. And there are different ways in which we could possibly explore these connections. So the first is the point, as Rökenstein himself did, two particular examples, and these are all images by Rökenstein, Um, maybe in the period probably directly before he meets Beardsley. So we can point to these particular examples in which stylistic or thematic similarities may be said to be immediately evident. And in fact, Rokersheim himself suggests that this painting on the far right Souvenir of Scarborough may have been in Beardsley's mind. I'm not going to go into whether it was or wasn't, but certainly these kind of paintings from the early 1890s, in which he's really exploring his obsession with the 1830s, are interesting to see in relation to Beardsley. Um, We could also look at another example, and this is a wonderful example that's noted by Linda in the catalogue, and um, I think Mark Samuels-Lasner has pointed this out before as well which draws together Rothenstein's really intriguing painting Porphyria from 1895 with Beardsley's Lady on the Sofa from the same year and also the Staff brothers' Girl on the Sofa from the same year as well and Porphyria is in some ways a kind of literary painting as well because it alludes to a poem by Robert Brown So I think the connections expressed here are very interesting and they show the way in which certain themes and subjects are passed around artists the way in which they move across media and arguably change meaning subtly as they do. However, rather than focus on specific works and um, sort of visual similarities here, I do want to draw attention briefly to some of the bigger themes and ideas being explored. So firstly, and most obviously, the the use of literature amongst these artists. Beardsley, as we know, cannot really be understood um, outside of the literary context in which his work was placed, despite the fact, as we also know, the role of illustrator is one that he challenges in interesting and innovative ways. So the relationship between text and image is never simple with Beardsley. And this is the same when we look at the work, um, paintings by Rothenstein and his contemporaries, in which we see a similarly fascinating And sometimes bewildering approach to narrative, and this, as um, Lorraine Croista has put it, um, is the artist as critic, or as another art historian, um, Pamela Fletcher, has put it, um, a process of what she calls anti-narrative, in which the image invokes a text but refuses to illustrate it, but instead sort of comments on it. And interestingly, these two arguments, made by Hoistre in relation to illustration and Fletcher in relation to turn-of-the-century painting, (laughs) have yet to be fully assimilated, so they currently stand apart. And I think more could be said on the relationship between the way somebody like William Rothenstein uses Browning or Ibsen in The Doll's House, and the way in which Beardsley and other illustrators work with and against texts. So there's the approach to particular texts, and to narrative more generally, there's also, and I've explored this elsewhere, the recurrence of particular authors. So I've long been interested in the way that artists in the 1890s and beyond, including Beardsley and Röchenstein, are absolutely fascinated by the figure of Balzac. And one conclusion I've drawn from this, and wish to develop further, is that he stands as an especially useful model for artists seeking a constructive middle ground between the twin poles of symbolism and realism. And I'm glad the word realism came up earlier, because it's interesting to see Beardsley in relation to realism, strange as that may sound. And this is a kind of middle ground that Röfenstein, with a wink to Wilde, refers to in a 1900 text on Goya as imaginative reality. And this is a phrase I particularly like to use to think about Röfenstein, Beardsley and his contemporaries. So this interest in Balzac brings together a sometimes disparate group of artists working in a range of styles but united in core ideals, and I could have brought many more images in today to illustrate (coughs) that. Something else that unites these artists, um, many of whom would go on to exhibit from 1898 at the Carfax Gallery, which is co-founded by Rothenstein, and after 1901, run by Robbie Ross, who really uses the gallery to promote Beardsley's work, among others. is the interest in the old masters. So Rothenstein and Beardsley are regularly referred to by critics at the time as the moderns, but they were all amateur art historians as well, perhaps the word amateur is a bit mean in this context, actually very good art historians, whose studio and bedroom walls were often decorated with images by, in Beardsley's case, Mantegna, Rothenstein's Rembrandt and Goya and at the Carfax they even showed their work in the company of the old masters so their images were also stuffed full of kind of nods and winks to their forebears some subtle some less so and again particular figures reoccur and demand further attention likewise this kind of wider context of the international art market in which works by these artists are busy circulating and also changes in art publishing which allow reproductions of works by Mantegna, Rembrandt, Goya etc to circulate in ever greater numbers and increasingly better quality. So I want to finish by... I know I'm skipping through very quickly some big <coughs> things here. but I want to finish by returning to an issue already mentioned in passing and this is the dialogue between media which art historians have traditionally struggled to deal with. So we have our histories of illustrated books, our histories of prints, and our histories of painting, and they don't overlap as much as they should, and this is particularly pertinent to the 1890s when artists are working on all of these different media at once. So those operating within the kind of higher sphere of painting um, frequently note at this time the significance um, of the lesser sphere of the graphic arts. So I take here as two examples, Charles Keane and Phil May. So it's always struck me that an artist such as Charles Keane, who's now seen as a sort of vaguely interesting 19th century caricaturist, are really heroic figures for not just turn-of-the-century graphic artists, but painters as well. I think Sifit <laughs> refers to Keene as one of the great 19th century artists. And Whistler apparently said that modern black and white could be summed up in two words, Phil May. And again, Phil May is now seen as a sort of distinctly minor character rather than central in histories of the period. So to put it simply, I believe we need a history of visual culture in the 1890s that breaks down these hierarchies between media and plays close attention to the synergies within. We also, and this is where I'm going to end today, need a history of visual culture in the 1890s that takes account of Beardsley's significance, but which doesn't let it speak for the whole. So we need a period that doesn't belong to Beardsley, but a period in which he does belong.